Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. Today we have Catherine Knapke. Catherine was raised in a small Mennonite community in Columbus, Ohio. She was taught to be peaceful, quiet, and not ask for anything she wanted. Catherine's upbringing stoked the fire for chronic depression, which ultimately led to a devastating struggle with multiple eating disorders, a panic disorder, and crippling anxiety. After escaping an abusive relationship in college, she relapsed into her eating disorder. Her story of finding herself in the midst of her recovery and surrounding herself with healthy people who support her recovery is beautiful and inspiring and reminds us that all things are possible. Catherine is now the Chief Operating Officer at the American Negotiation Institute. She also hosts the Ask with Confidence podcast, which is designed to empower women by helping them develop the skills and confidence they need to better navigate difficult conversations and achieve the highest level of success. Catherine's background is in the medical profession as a psychiatric nurse trained in therapeutic crisis intervention, and she is a certified mediator. She's dedicated to helping women overcome psychological, emotional, and societal barriers in the workplace. Woo, you guys, this is awesome. Catherine is amazing, absolutely amazing. And you will love hearing how she was raised in this Mennonite, you know, don't ask for anything you want, kind of be peaceful, be quiet surrounding, upbringing, milieu, and now she's the chief operating officer at the American Negotiation Institute and hosts a podcast called Ask with Confidence. I just love it. It's so awesome. And her story of her eating disorder is really intense. And I hope that it reaches somebody who can relate to the experience. So without further ado, episode 63, let's do this. So you, how many, you're in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, when did you guys go on lockdown? Oh, uh, it seems like so, I feel like it's been forever. So things started shutting down about four weeks ago now, and I ended up getting, so OSU shut down during their spring break, and I know that because we were in the middle of teaching a very intense course my boss, who I work for, co-teaches at the College of Law. And it's a very intense week-long course, and they get two credit hours for this. Um, and so they shut it down, and we had to figure out what do we do during this shutdown. And at the very end of it, I ended up getting sick. So I was on isolation for uh, 15 days, and I had problems getting access to testing. So on the 12th did day, get, I don't know COVID? if I... I don't know. I had a lot of the symptoms. I never had a fever, but had started with a sore throat, got a little bit of congestion, and then had this really awful, like dry cough and lost my sense of taste, lost my sense of smell. So I, I don't know if I had it, but I didn't, I couldn't get access to a test until about day 12. Um, and so Sounds everything, like you had it. yeah, it's, it's the timing is weird. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't exposed to, any other germs. Um, and my boss had traveled to California, Florida, and New York within the span of like a week. So it's possible I, I got it somehow from, from him. 
So then by day 12 and when they tested, it came back and we don't have the testing for antibodies yet. So don't know if I had it and was already exposed to it or if I just had something else. But was, I mean, you lost your sense of smell, which is a pretty, yeah, that's yeah. A pretty telltale sign. Like, could you, did you test it? Were you, did you literally like try to smell things that smell and nothing? Just, just no sense. I just woke up one day and had like, couldn't taste, couldn't smell. I mean, trying to eat food and just nothing there. And I was, I wasn't like super congested or anything. It was very light congestion. So no reason that I would lose anything like that. So it was a few days that I dealt with that. So super fun. What do you eat when you can't taste anything? So for me, like, I mean, I'm not like a huge food person because I mean, my history with eating disorder and stuff, food is kind of still weird. Like I I don't, I'm terrible at cooking. So for me, then it's just like going through the motions of, you know, a regular eating pattern. And at that point, it's just no fun. I mean, you might as well feed me cardboard and I wouldn't know the difference. So at that point, it's just going through the motions of eating. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You just, you just uh, get it down and it's very disappointing because it's like, oh, I know this. I know what this tastes like. I expect it to taste like something. And then right. it doesn't. It doesn't. Oh, that's so wild. What mm-hmm. a wild experience. Well, I'm glad you're yeah. feeling better. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, you know, after I think they announced the lockdown close to when I was about to get out of isolation. And so then it's like, oh, oh yeah. man, I can't even go anywhere after this. So it's like still being on isolation. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least the fear of catching it's probably a little bit less. Slightly. I mean, I, I'm hoping that I had it. Uh, so that way, you know, if I go out, then I'm fine, but there's still the chance that I had something else. So I don't, I don't know. I just yeah. Say. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better and you are here. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. For being Thank here. you. Wild times. So I had, had no idea I'd be doing this podcast under quarantine and pandemic and apocalypse. So I'm super it's excited. Pretty, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. I am, you know, it's weird. Most of my schedule has not changed um, because I've already worked from either home or, or an office, but you know, I can easily work from home. And then I go to school online in the evenings and I have little kids. So like most of my life has not changed, but the energy had like the actual, it, it feels different. Things feel different. And it's uh so it's been a really, I was expecting to not kind of feel that much change, but there, it has, I've, I've been surprised that just the energy on the planet feels different. That is, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I technically, I guess, work from home. I mean, it's a we're a small business. My background is in nursing. So at some point I could, I'm getting emails right now from the Ohio Board of Nursing that we have to fill out, could get deployed. I don't know, which is very weird to have emails saying that because I'm not in the military. So I've, I've never... Right. never had to experience any kind of like deployment or anything. So it's kind of yeah. like, I feel like it's almost like a war, but so technically it's a small business and I could work from home, but we have an office. So I, I go, I go to an office and, um, have, have worked very hard to set up a routine where I'm not just working at home because I have a very hard time separating stuff and I will burn myself out because I'm a type A personality and I like things to be perfect. Um, so I had to, had to work very hard to kind of separate that. And so now I'm, I'm at home and I'm having to, reestablish work habits at home. Um, and so that is, that has been 
very hard to do. And because I, I will find other things to do and will get distracted and I'm finding low motivation. So it is definitely a different feel going back into that. And yeah, the atmosphere is, it's very weird. Yeah. Very, very weird to go outside and like no one's there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, or there's people, there's people like walking their dogs, but they're looking at you. Like you just, it's like, it's a very weird environment. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm living like in those pandemic movies, those horror mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm living in one of those. Yeah. Um, where I have to like, I like, I took my boys on a, I have a three-year-old twin boys and I took them on a walk and I like, like yelled at them for getting too close to somebody, you know, like I was like, get over here, you guys, you know, and I'm like, I like can't explain anything to them. So I just seem like this psychotic human being now. Oh my God. It's weird. It is. It is so surreal. It's very weird. And like being afraid of people is yeah, such a weird, yeah, my neighbors. I'm like, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, okay. So you're in Columbus, Ohio and very interesting fact about you. Uh, you grew up a Mennonite and I actually know a tiny bit about Mennonites. I went to treatment with a girl who was a Mennonite. And so I learned all about it from her and she was there. This is a little side fact. So I went to treatment. I went to this, uh, it was, I don't know about treatment, but it was a lockdown in Utah in, uh, 2003 and I was 16, she was 15 and they sent her. So I was there for shooting heroin and, you know, just having this crazy life. And she was there for wearing pants. (laughs) That's very different life. So there are, there are different branches of Mennonites. So okay, you have okay. Conservative Mennonites, and then you have liberal Mennonites. So your conservative Mennonites are going to be the ones that are dressed more similar to like the Amish style. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're wearing like the dress and the the head covering and the they at least wear zippers um, and use electricity. So that's kind of like the an obvious difference between the Amish and the Mennonite. And then more liberal Mennonites, which is how I grew up, we dress you can you can discern us from you know oh, an atheist. Okay, um, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the the tenets are the same, so it's pacifism. Um, so growing up very peace based. So yeah, it was interesting. So like on its face, I remember at the time thinking like you you're here, you know, like oh my god. And then, um, but another interesting piece of it, which was that she she so someone broke into her home. It sounds like she was a more conservative family, but someone or her uncle or someone broke into her home and assaulted her and her family didn't stop it because they knew who it was. And because they, their tent, the tenants were around peace and non-interference and non-violence. And so they made the, because they knew it wasn't like a stranger raking in, like some, some of the, most wild. So of course my introduction to it was very uh, clearly, you know, that's what I thought a Mennonite was. <laughs> so when I was like, she's a Mennonite. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. So that's what I, and I remember thinking like, Oh, peace and, and, and pacifism and you know, like what could go wrong? Like that sounds great. Right. And then it does. Yeah. It, and you know, for the most part it is. And I, I, I don't want to bash my upbringing. I had a very, healthy upbringing and very happy upbringing. My parents were very supportive and, you know, I, I really enjoyed the, the environment that I grew up in, but clearly 
I kind of took it to an extreme um, and it had an impact on me that was detrimental. Um, And I didn't learn, you know, kind of where the line was that was too far, where it it impacts your ability to kind of care for yourself um, and speak up for yourself. And that combined with mental illness and my mental health um, issues was very detrimental to my, to my health and to my ability to speak up for myself and set some boundaries that I really need to be able to set. And so that kind of created this snowball effect. Yeah, like a on. perfect storm almost like the passivism and then, and then the like innate passivism. That's interesting. Do, do men have the same experience in terms of like women, men, is the passivism the same? I mean, I, I, I don't know the statistics on that. Um, at least speaking for my family, because right now, so my job, I work for a company called the American Negotiation Institute. And so we go around uh, providing trainings on negotiation and conflict resolution. And so coming from a background where nobody in my family negotiates, because the idea is, is that you are grateful for what you have. So my parents have never negotiated. And like my, my mom is a massage therapist and she struggles with like raising her rates because she doesn't want to rock the boat with people being upset that she's charging more. My dad, um, with his job, he has never negotiated his salary. And he's always said, you know, I don't feel like I've needed to do it because I'm just grateful for what I have. So I've, I've always just been brought up in this environment where you are thankful and grateful for what you have. And the idea that pushing for more is kind of frowned upon. Right. It's such an interesting thing because on its face, that seems very like, like it would breed happiness, right? It would breed like, you know, being grateful for what you have, peace, pa- like, the, <laughs> I mean, it's, it sounds really like, you know, really, and it's interesting, like there are things that in any religion, any upbringing, there are unintended consequences, right? Anything. And um, it's just interesting that what the unintended consequences are in this situation. So you you talked a little, you mentioned mental illness. You were diagnosed with mental illness at nine? Yeah. So I was diagnosed very young and I have, it's both a, a blessing and a curse. Um, it's a very strong genetic link. So runs on my mom's side of the family. My grandma has some light struggles with some mental illness. My mom had it pretty significantly. My sister has it and then I have it. And so each generation tended to get slightly worse. Um, and so I'm the youngest in the family. So I have had significantly more struggles than the generations before me. What's your, how many siblings do you have? Just the one sister. Okay. Okay. And they diagnosed you with depression, anything else? Yeah. It started with chronic depression and my mom and at the age of nine, and I've asked my mom before, and she says that she saw something. And at the age of nine, I'm not entirely sure what she saw. And I don't have very many memories of things being bad at that stage. I was with a group of friends. I wanted to be part of the popular and in crowd. And that kind of started a lot of the issues with people pleasing and really trying to fit in at that age, which caused a lot of problems later on. Um, and, and was a huge trigger for Um, disordered eating and and later on my anorexia. But at that age, at that moment when I was diagnosed, I I don't have many memories about what exactly it was. My mom says that she saw something and I don't, I'm not entirely sure. But that's when I got that diagnosis. And then later on, anxiety was added on to that. Um, And then years later, some more things were added on as well. Yeah. So you 
really with the chronic depression, especially that young, what did that, what did that look like? Yeah. So at that young age, and and like I said, it's a blessing and a curse. So with my mom having gone through it, um, and then also my sister having it as well, and she was diagnosed also pretty young, it was, it's not like it was a a stigma in my family. Um, and with my background as a nurse, I worked as a psych nurse, um, and would see a lot of, I worked on an adolescent unit and I would see a lot of patients come through a lot of kids come through and their families didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to talk about it. So the kid would come in, we treat them, they'd get stable and then they'd leave and the parents wouldn't want to deal with it. So the kid would have like no follow-up after they left. And so they would immediately be back in just because there was no follow-up. I was lucky in the sense that my parents were well aware. My mom had been dealing with it for a long time. So there was kind of immediate support as soon as those signs were seen my parents immediately put me into therapy and I started on medication at age nine. So it was talked about, it wasn't hidden in my family. So I'm very lucky that it was caught and it was talked about. And so it was never something that was, that I was taught to be ashamed of. That's awesome. You, it seems like the Mennonite passivism might have been a barrier to getting that level of interference and treatment had your mom not had that experience. Is that is that um, common? I, I don't know that it necessarily has to do with the religious upbringing on that. I know from my mom's upbringing, she basically had to kind of forge her own way and kind of advocate for herself. And she had a pretty significant struggle with my grandparents and kind of at the, the age, my, my parents are older. So with their generation, mental illness was kind of this thing that you didn't really talk about. Um, so my, my grandparents were more or less in, in denial. And so it wasn't until my mom was an adult where she was really able to advocate for herself and kind of do things on her own. So up until then, my grandparents just kind of ignored it. And it wasn't, it's not anything negative on them. And I, my grandparents were very loving. It's just the, how, how the times were. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's more generational. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. And so you switched schools and traveled abroad. What happened when you came back? Yeah. So that switching schools and traveling, there's a, there's a big gap there. So, um, with my diagnosis at age nine and, and I talked about wanting to be part of the popular crowd. Um, and I tried so hard and, and things, and I, I was bullied, um, at this age and things got so bad that I needed to switch schools. Um, and so once I switched schools, things got good for a while. And I had, um, thankfully my middle school years, and early high school years went really well. And then my junior year of high school, I studied abroad in England and had been on very low dose of depression medication, essentially almost like a security blanket of how low of a dose I was on. And then studied for an entire year abroad in England. And it's hard to get a prescription for that long Um, when you're overseas and you have to see a doctor. So we just decided since I had been doing so well, hey, I might not need it. And so I went off of medication. And then when I came back, that's kind of when all the triggers hit. And so when I came back is kind of when the depression got significantly worse and um, my anorexia uh, kicked in. And that was kind of immediately when I got back from um, studying abroad. So that was in... That was in high school, but had you had you had any dieting behavior before? Yeah, so I 
I was an overweight child. Um, so dealing with depression and being overweight and, um, was in and out of like doctor's offices and they would tell me, Oh, Hey, you need to lose weight. And it wasn't done in like a mean way. I was picked on by kids for being overweight, but I started my first diet in fourth grade and it was Atkins diet. So I remember, I remember doing like no carbs and whatever. And from there it would be more overeating and then going on some ridiculous fad diet. Um, and that was kind of a cycle, but it was never like a, a diagnosed eating disorder. And it was always, my parents wanted to support me with what I wanted to do as long as I didn't take it to an extreme, but it was definitely kind of a cycle. And it was always very frustrating for me, um, wanting to be part of the the skinny group, the thin group. I had always wanted to kind of achieve being popular and that kind of stuck with me, but I was able to manage it up until um, I got back from studying abroad. What did it look like when you got back from England? I went through grief when I came back from England. It was a grieving period. I met, and I'm still friends with the people that I made friends with. I go back and visit and, and I'm actually going um, in October for a wedding. So I, I keep in touch with them. And so when I came back, it was like losing a family. And so I, I it's a, it was a grieving period. And so I don't, I don't know what switched it, but that was the trigger that kind of set it off. And then I just stopped eating. I got, I got sick one time and then that kind of just set off this trigger for me to just severely restrict my eating. And a lot of people with eating disorders will hide their behaviors. And I never tried to hide my behavior. So my parents caught on very quickly. And so I got back in June and come November, that November, I was in treatment for an eating disorder. I I was restricting so severely that I was already in treatment in November. What was the catalyst to being in treatment? Was it just, were you having uh, symptoms other than being too thin? Um, significant weight loss, um, definitely was not so just significant, significant restrictive behaviors couldn't get me to eat anything. And so just, and it wasn't, it wasn't inpatient. It was partial. So my parents, I was in my senior year of high school at this time, my parents took me out of high school. Um, and so I was in a partial program. So I'd go there every single day, Monday through Friday, and then I'd come home in the evenings, and they had a tutor for me that would help me with schoolwork. And so I still graduated. I was, a again, very type A perfectionist. I would rewrite all my notes. Um, and I, I graduated valedictorian. Um, so I still did very well, but was definitely burning myself out at that point. What did the weight loss look like, like for just for understanding at a deeper level? Like what, if you came home, how, how much weight do you think you lost when you stopped eating? Who? Um... So when I came home from England, I won't give numbers because I don't want anybody listening that may have an eating disorder because that people kind of talk, yeah, um, and will use those. But I, I would have been more on the normal to overweight side. Um, and then when I went into treatment, I was on the underweight side. So I lost weight very rapidly, probably, I, I don't even want to give a number for that, but I, I definitely went to the underweight category. Were you, were you at a medical risk? At that point? No, I, in, in another, cause I, I had multiple stints in treatment at another time I was, um, but at that point was not yet at medical risk. 
they did worry. I have very low blood pressure, so they would worry about that and would monitor it, but I wasn't in a need where it would be hospitalized at that point. And then when you got out of that treatment, uh, what happened from there? Yeah. So after I got out of that treatment and I was very angry at my parents, I felt very proud of this eating disorder and my thinness. So I was very angry. And these were some very rough years because I, I wanted the eating disorder and I, I was very attached to it. So after I got out of that, I, I went right back to the restricting. And so I, I was more strategic about the restricting because my parents had rules about, you know, and also the doctors that I was seeing um, had rules about you have to be at a certain weight in order to go to college. And so I, I maintained that and I was at the very lowest, the lowest limit to go to college. So I, I maintained that and made it two weeks into college before there was an intervention um, and I was pulled out of college because I was not doing very well. Two weeks. Wow. That's a yes. lot, lot to happen in two weeks. I, I did not make it very far in college. Um, and I had I had goals of becoming a doctor, but I, I knew I was sick. So I still had a rational brain. I knew I was sick and I did not think I would make it. So I, I, I had a foresight to know that people with eating disorders, that it, um, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. So I, I knew that I was very sick. And so I went into nursing with the the knowledge that, hey, I can probably at least make it through this. And if I'm still doing okay, I can go to medical school. So were you being weighed those two weeks? Like how did they, were you away for school? How did they know? So I went to the University of Cincinnati and my parents kept tabs on me. And like I said, I was not very good at hiding. And I would have some, this is the, the point where I was starting to have more medical symptoms. So things like passing out and some hospital scares where I did not feel right and would get myself to a hospital. And so I would, I would call my parents in a panic. Um, okay. So concrete things that were happening. Okay. I was picturing them coming to your dorm or something. <laughs> <laughs> just, just walking yeah. in. Step I, on the scale. My parents were very worried at that point. I, I know that they probably, if it was up to them, they probably would not have even let me go to college. Um, but since I was an adult, they wanted to let me try at least. And I, I appreciate that they even let me try. And after they staged the intervention and let me go two weeks, I managed to convince them that I did not need to go to treatment yet and that I could manage to do it on my own. Um, and so I went, I moved home. See, you thought you couldn't negotiate. Oh, I, I was a master <laughs> negotiator at this point, like master manipulator. And I convinced my parents and I, I, they, I know that they, I think it's just because they wanted to believe that I could do it and that, that I would get better. And I had like no intention of following through and I, sorry, mom and dad, I had no intention of following through, but I managed to convince them that, Hey, I will, I will go to the appointments and I will get better and then I'll go to college. And so that lasted from the two weeks that I was <laughs> <laughs> um, came Two back weeks after. Well, no, I, I actually lasted until February. Um, and so I, I had a job working at a jewelry store and it, that lasted until February. But again, I was not following through um, and then had the scariest medical scare, uh, the worst medical scare um, throughout my entire history with the anorexia. So I was, I was working at this jewelry store and there's 
only one of us working at a time because it was a little kiosk. And all of a sudden I felt like I was going to pass out or vomit. And so I'm not supposed to leave the kiosk unattended, but I had to go. So I start walking out and all of a sudden I can't see, like my vision just goes. And there are other kiosks around and I hear somebody saying, you don't look good. And I remember mumbling, I don't feel so good. And then like my bowels went. So like both of them go, which is gross, but... No, that's on that. I mean, that's a serious reaction that doesn't happen. Yeah. And like, then I started, like, I couldn't walk. And so people, two people carried me to the bathroom and I still can't see. And so then the next thing I know, EMS is there and then they transported me. And then this is the time where I was in the hospital inpatient. And then I was there and um, Ohio doesn't have any inpatient facilities for adults for like eating disorder treatment. So they were trying to find a place for me to go and they were struggling to find a place for me to go. And I didn't find this out until a few years later, like once I was in a better mental state, but the hospital actually determined earlier that I was okay to be discharged, but my dad's work actually covered my hospital bill for longer. And so I was in the hospital And then there was like a three-day overlap where I was home. And then from there, I went to an inpatient uh, treatment in Oklahoma and was there for like four-ish months um, in inpatient treatment and was very angry, still very angry, did not want to be there, but it did save my life. So is this like, like there's no gays in Russia, there's no eating disorders in Ohio. They just don't think they need, they don't think they need any, uh, any treatment for eating disorders? I I don't know. I just, you know, Ohio has great medical facilities. We have fantastic, like the partial program that I went to is fantastic. And I just found out that they're adding an adolescent inpatient facility. Like they're going to be building it on to the partial program that they have here. They just don't have the facilities for adults. So I don't, I don't know. We are, we're a little bit, we're a little bit behind on that one. So what medically happened that, what about malnutrition causes someone's bowels to go? I think a lot of it's electrolyte imbalance, very low, uh, low body weight, low blood pressure, and and just um, the act of like passing out and like all of your muscles relax. So that includes... Oh, so you did pass out. Mm -hmm. I was totally, I was totally out. I am still not really clear on like why I went like blind first. And I I think that still has to do with like the electrolyte imbalances. But yeah. Was there any lasting damage? Like once they were able to get electrolytes in you, were you back to ship? Well, ship shape is is relative, but were you, (laughs) I mean, was it, was it a, was, was the recovery from that particular place did it take time or was it like as soon as you were able to kind of get nutrition at that level, you were, you were okay? So I have some lasting, like I do have some damage to like thinning bones in my hips. I had a, a DEXA scan done. Um, and so with my hip bones, they're slightly thinner. There was some damage, slight liver damage. I'm trying to think of what else. I lucked out that I did not damage my heart. Um, you can do that with anorexia. That's a, that's a common one. Do some serious damage to the heart. So I lucked out on that one. And I think that is it. So I got, I got lucky. 
that I did not do more serious damage because of how severe I was restricting. But yeah. So what, so you go to inpatient in Oklahoma of all places. I mean, you're really sending me for a loop here. Mennonites that don't dress like Amish. And then there's no eating disorder treatment for adults in Ohio, but Oklahoma. Yeah. So Oklahoma just just happened to have the first bed open. So it's not that Oklahoma is the closest facility available to Ohio. Um, you know, there's, there are treatment centers in Wisconsin. There's um, treatment centers in Virginia. But it just happened that Oklahoma had the the, the big bed available. Or, yeah, the, the most available. Okay. And, and so you go there and... At this point, are you like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore, or you just don't want the consequences, or kind of what's your headspace? I was furious. I was, I, so I tried to get my parents' insurance to drop me. I, I called them. I, I was a crafty person. I tried, yeah, I tried to get them to drop me, and I wouldn't have, <laughs> that's yeah. what my doctor said too. So yeah. that's a first. Yeah. To, to try to get out of, of being in treatment. Luckily, they did not. And so they had a caseworker assigned to my case. So I'd have like a specific nurse that would talk to me. And she was like, just no. <laughs> she flat out told me no. And I burst out into tears. And I'm just like, why? This would save you money. And she goes, no, your parents love you. You're staying there. I'm sorry. We're not going to drop you. Oh, man. I bet that call. I, I bet she's still like, you know, top ten strangest, funniest calls of uh, working for an insurance company. The one time someone begged me to drop them from the policy. Yes. Yeah, I know, I know of of all the things, and I, I hung up on her after that, and then of I would course. not talk. To, I would not talk to her, and I'm, you know, I think of. Did you, know, you write a bad review? <laughs> so and so insurance is the worst insurance ever. I told I, them. <laughs> at that point I did not you know they did not give us access to like internet and, and anything um they had requirements on like what clothes we could wear and different things that we could use so probably if I had access at that point I I would have um but luckily for them I did not have access but um you know I think about like my top 10 highlights of behavior that yeah. is, oh, <laughs> that yeah, is on one of them yeah, yeah. It's definitely a good one. And and so, okay. So you're pissed. You're, you're, so you're pissed. It's funny. It's so, it reminds me, it's like so much like the headspace of, um, you know, of, of drug addicts and alcoholics where you're like something horrible happens to you. That is clearly a sign that you're out of control and you, that your loved ones put you in, you know, some sort of safe place and you just could not be more angry with them could not and incensed absolutely incensed and they're like this person is insane like how how do you not see that and and you're just the anger is palpable and so i said it's funny i would think that for some reason i would think that the anorexic passing out the whole thing like you'd be like okay i don't know why i thought that but i i thought that i thought that was coming like okay, you know, I see clearly I need to go. But I mean, it's the same thing as I would have been like, this is a complete overreaction. I just miscalculated, you know, whatever. So with anorexia, they actually often link it to like alcoholism or drug addiction. And they actually have us recite the uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous prayer. Oh, um, do they? Okay. Yeah, yeah. 
So because like the link is, it's very strong. So yeah, even though I know, I knew this was horrible. I was so attached to it and so like addicted to the feeling and the control and kind of almost the, almost the high from it. And like, I I couldn't stop. Um, So when my parents put me in it, I was, I was pissed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you get out of treatment in Oklahoma and uh, you go right back to where you started. Almost. Um, Okay. Almost. Almost. You you went back to college. So I got out in June or July and had a very rough summer. Um, And this is kind of where it's like binging. So I almost switched from anorexia. I switched from anorexia to binge eating disorder. And it went like it went binging for a little bit. And then I went back to college in the fall and did a year down at UC and then decided to transfer to OSU. And I did it one to be closer to home because I was lonely down in Cincinnati and I isolated a lot and did a lot of binging um, that year. And two, I met a guy um, and I started I started dating this guy and wanted to move back to Columbus for him. So I, I transferred back to Columbus after that year. And then it um, was binging for a little bit longer after that, but shortly switched back to the anorexia after that. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, this is Ashley Lowe, Blasting Game. I am here to tell you that National Online Recovery Day will debut this year on September 22nd. In celebration, Lion Rock Recovery is sponsoring a live sober influencer panel on getting clean and staying connected. Join me as I moderate an hour-long interactive discussion with three prominent panelists live on the Lion Rock Recovery's Facebook page, September 22nd at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Mark it down. Visit www.nationalonlinerecoveryday.com for more event details. And this got, you know, we always talk about like people who are attracted to us when we're at our worst. Like if you start, you know, this isn't always the case. So, you know, take it for what it's worth, but like people attract you attract where you are in life, right? So you attract, like if you have someone who thinks you're amazing when you're at your worst, the likelihood is they are not the healthiest person in the world. Yeah. I've always heard like that you attract what you think you deserve. And as much as I hate to admit it, in that stage of my life, I definitely attracted not the healthiest character. Um, And like the first year of our relationship was good it definitely got me out of like that pit of despair. I had some not eating disorder related hospitalizations, but more psych related hospitalizations. So some almost cries for attention, not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily call them suicide attempts, but more self-injury type uh, overdoses, uh, but kind of not like a it's almost weird. It was almost like uh, I took it like this isn't going to do anything kind of overdose um, and kind of like a, I don't know what else to do. I'm kind of going out of my mind. I don't necessarily want to kill myself, but I don't know what else to do. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time in psych because it wasn't necessarily I want to die or I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not harming myself. I'm just, I am going out of my mind and I, 
I don't know how else to express it. So very weird attempts, but definitely cries for, I need help. So the guy that I started dating definitely got me out of those. And I'm very thankful for that um, because that was a very rough cycle um, in a very rough year. And when I moved back, I got to experience other things and I kind of got out of that rut. But after that first year is when it started to get more abusive. Um, And it was definitely more sexually abusive and eventually turned into a rape situation. And I've actually never been publicly open about being raped. Um, My parents finally found out and I went into trauma therapy finally for it after some time. But this is actually the first time I've ever spoken publicly about it. Um, And I am under the, the feeling now that the more that I'm open about these things, the less of a hold it has on me. Um, That's kind of how I've stopped most of my binge behaviors and all of my other mental illness behaviors as well by being open about it and talking to people about it. So that relationship took me a long time to get out of. Um, And I went kind of back and forth between binge eating and more anorexic behaviors. It was like a a pendulum. I'd, I'd swing back and forth and they would last I dated this guy for about four years. And so it was a very back and forth abuse cycle that once I decided to get out of it, um, it ended in rape. And so that was kind of the turning point for me to actually start taking care of myself. Um, and pretty much the turning point um, where I started to get more serious about recovery, I guess. What is it, you know, for people who've never been in one of those relationships, what is the experience like when you start to question the relationship or when other people point out that things aren't normal, but you aren't totally aware yet? Like, what is that? What is that process like? Because I think for some people, it's like, well, why didn't you just leave? Why don't you, you know, there's all those, those questions. And those of us have been, who've been to that party, we, we know why. But for the people who don't understand, or maybe the people who are in it, who want to, you know, who, where you might say something they relate to, what was that experience like? Yeah. Um, and for me, it still blows my mind that I was in a relationship like that. I mean, I come from a good family. I don't have like people in my life do not go into abusive relationships. Um, very stereotypical, but you know, that is culturally, that's, that's how it is. So, and like for me, I'm, I was a straight A student, very good grades, um, a, a good, a good girl. So to, for me to fall into a relationship like that, it was very shocking. And for me to get stuck in a relationship like that for as long as I did, it's even more shocking. And it's still hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that I stayed in a relationship like that. And so from the outside looking in for people that have never been in relationships like that, it's very easy to be like, well, why don't you just leave? Obviously when somebody starts hurting you, you should immediately the, Hey, that's a red flag. Get out of that. The same for people that have never had an eating disorder. Why don't you just eat? It's not that simple. So with that relationship, it would be like, Oh, well, if I just, I I liked him. I, I loved the guy. I truly loved him. And so when it was good, it was very good. And then something bad would happen. And so I would just, my peace loving and my need to people, please, it would just be okay. I'll just kind of roll over and 
then it will be over and then things will be good again. And so between that and the things that were wrong in my life. So I had things that I needed to work on. I was very clearly struggling with my own mental health issues and my own feelings of self-loathing. And so there's this guy that's giving me attention and I didn't want to lose that because at that point I was kind of putting off my own problems by trying to fix this person and putting all of throwing all of my efforts into trying to fix this relationship and oh if I just try harder or oh if I just do this it will get better and so it would get better sometimes and oh things are great and then it would go crappy again and so then it would go through the cycle again and that's kind of how abuse cycles work it's a abuse I'm so sorry things get good again and then the cycle continues. And so it's not just as easy because there are feelings involved. There, there are a lot of mixed emotions. And then there are, there are underlying feelings for the person that is being abused and underlying problems that they aren't addressing. That makes it hard for them to leave as well. What was the catalyst for deciding to leave? Like what was the final enough? So I had started to take care of myself. I was starting to get stable again. And he had a hard time dealing with that. So we were fighting a lot more. He didn't like the fact that to him, it seemed like I wasn't paying enough attention to him. So he felt like I was drawing away. And so we would fight more, which would lead to more abuse. And so it was, it was an on and again, off again. So it wasn't like we were together the whole four years. It was definitely on again, off again. And so at the very end of the fighting, I went and saw him for a last time um, just to tell him, you know, this is it. I'm tired of having this conversation and felt like I needed to give him the time. Like I owed him that time. And that's when it ended in rape. Um, And after that, I knew it was done. What do you think? Like, I don't know, you probably, maybe you have or haven't heard friends say like, I think I owe him to break up with him in person. Or I think I like, I owe this or I owe that. What are your thoughts around like when you're leaving a a relationship that's not healthy and ending it, having been through what you've been through? I think it depends on the situation. So if it's a situation where you are putting yourself in danger, you don't owe them anything. You do not need to to tell them in person that you want to be, you want to break up, especially if it's a situation where you've tried in the past and things have not gone well in like a regular relationship. Sure. Don't tell them over text. <laughs> um, tell them tell them in person. But if it's a situation where you, you um, know you could potentially be putting yourself in harm's way, you don't owe them anything. And to keep yourself safe above everything else. And I know that's easier said than done. And you uh, you know you want to be a nice person. You want to do things the right way. But there's not necessarily going to be a quote unquote right way. Did you know that you were at risk walking into that situation? I didn't think, honestly, I didn't think that he would take it that far. You know, there had been throughout a lot of our relationship, it would be what I would call consensual rape, meaning that he would push for sex and it would get to the point where he would push so much that I would just kind of roll over and let him. Otherwise, it would turn into a fight. It would get ugly and So it was just easier to say, okay, but it doesn't mean that I wanted it. So I never thought that it would actually turn into being held down. 
kind of thing. So no, but I, I also knew that he was not happy about the situation and I knew what kind of person he was. So I guess there was a part of me that knew it could go south. I just didn't think it would go in that direction. That, yeah. Yeah. And so where did you go? You, you ended that, th- that happened. And did you leave there and call somebody? Did you, what did you do after there, after that? Nothing, you know, and in, in hindsight and, you know, female empowerment and whatever, I should have called somebody. I should have reported it and whatever, should have, could have, would have, didn't. In hindsight, I didn't do anything. And I'm okay with that. I made my bed and laid in it and I have gotten the treatment from it and I am a strong and powerful woman now. But after that, I did not. And, um, I continue to take care of myself and (laughs) I moved on. Yeah. 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 So did you, at that time you were still living close to home? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was actually living at home. My eating disorder threw off a lot of my independence. It came out at an age where I should have been finding my independence, um, but was dealing with the anorexia. So a lot of those years where I could have been living on my, on my own, I was struggling. Um, and so being independent took a lot of, a lot of times. And so actually it hasn't been until recent, um, that I've been able to thrive living on my own, but that took a while. And you were diagnosed with mild narcolepsy. What, uh, how did that play into things? I was. Um, the narcolepsy diagnosis actually came a lot later. And so in that one, kind of hard to tell. So with depression and very low motivation um, and, you know, a lot of sleeping with that one. And so it's hard to tell where the line between the narcolepsy and the depression comes in. And so it wasn't until I started taking better care of myself and was more on the stable, even keel And I've been doing this for a long time. I can kind of tell where my baseline is. And I know when I'm starting to feel the depression. And I also know when I'm not feeling it. So when I was on on an even keel for a while and on a stable path for a while, um, noticing that I am still tired all the time. And I would be sleeping six hours a day and then sleeping all through the night. And I'm like, this is not normal. So I got it checked out. Um, and got ended up with the diagnosis of narcolepsy. Um, and a lot of people think that narcolepsy, you just fall asleep instantly. It's a spectrum. So yes, <laughs> yes, there are people that are just going to like fall asleep randomly. I am kind of on the lighter end of the spectrum where I just feel exhausted and could just sleep constantly if I don't do anything about it. So having that added into the mix makes it a little bit more difficult And when I'm feeling depressed, it kind of adds this extra layer of heaviness where I just kind of feel like I'm walking through molasses and it's like this extra brain fog that I can't seem to break through. So getting that diagnosis and then getting the proper medication for that made a world of difference. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, this is what normal people feel like. I had no idea. I could have been awake this whole time. And now that I have the medication, I'm like one of the most productive people ever. But when I don't have it, you can definitely tell a difference. So it's made a world of difference. Yeah. So, and what is your, what happened after you left this relationship and with your eating disorder, take us through your, your recovery piece after, after that experience? Yeah. So 
the recovery from the eating disorder and from the relationship wasn't necessarily like once I got out of the relationship, it was all good. Um, you know, with mental illness, it's kind of, it's a roller coaster and it's not a straight line. Um, so there are definitely still times that I don't do as well. Um, I still have dips, but with the anorexic piece, at least I would say that I've been in solid recovery for probably about six years. I decided it was almost like a light switch for me. Most people don't get that. I'm very lucky. One day I just decided I was done and decided I wanted to be vegan, actually. And my parents were all for it. They were all about me getting better. They were desperate to get me to eat anything. And so they said yes. My doctor was totally against it um, because a lot of people with anorexia will use um, diets, like different diets, veganism or whatever, to restrict food intake even more. Me being the defiant patient and child that I am, I did it. And it worked for me. And so I was vegan for about a year, um, starting March 3rd, 2014, I think. And then after that, I decided that I really wanted to work on eating with family because at that point I was still eating separate. Um, and so my, I grew up eating dinner with family. Like we'd all sit down at the table and eat dinner together. I really missed that. And so then I started working on eating meals with them. But then when I would eat on my own, like lunch and breakfast, I would eat how I wanted to eat and then transition from there. And, and now I, I eat a standard diet. I don't eat vegan anymore, but that's how I got out of it. And from there, things started to improve. And I, I still struggle, like I said, um, but with the anorexic piece, you know, I still, I can still see the signs. They've said, you know, once an anorexic, always an anorexic. So I, I still struggle with like things that have a fa higher fat content in it. I still struggle with picking that food or like if I see two of the same types of food and one has higher calories, it's my natural tendency to grab the lower calorie thing. And so just small things like that, um, I have to think very consciously about am I grabbing it because it's lower calorie or am I grabbing it because I actually prefer the taste of that food, but I, I don't actively restrict anymore. So I'm very lucky in that sense that I don't, I don't deal with that piece as heavily, but I still deal with the depression and the anxiety. And when those get worse, eating disorder behaviors such as binging and wanting to engage in, in more eating disorder type behaviors, those come back stronger when I'm not doing as well. And so I have to make sure that I'm, I'm a very routine person. And so this, um, the coronavirus pandemic I've had to be very conscious about keeping a routine and making sure that I'm still sticking with the routine and making sure I'm still taking care of myself. Um, and one of the biggest pieces of getting out of it was making sure that I was setting boundaries of, no, I can't do that. No, I'm not going to take on that project. No, I, I don't agree to that kind of thing. Um, and making sure I'm not just people-pleasing for the sake of people-pleasing. So you go from this, you know, you grow up a Mennonite and then you, you, you go through this, um, this journey and you end in, you're a psych nurse and then you end up at the American negotiation Institute. Okay. So that's quite the jump, right? How did you get to the American negotiation Institute from psych nurse? Yeah. So backgrounds in nursing, obviously. And I went into nursing. So my entire probably from about fourth grade until 
sophomore year of high school, I wanted to be like interior decorator, interior designer. And then the eating disorder hit and all of a sudden I have this obsession with health and wanted to be a doctor. And so I started to recover when I was almost done with nursing school. And at that point, I had no idea what my interests were. My interests going all the way through college was anorexia. And so it was kind of this process of rediscovering myself. And by the point I had started recovery, I was almost done. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to finish my degree at this point because I don't really know what I want to do. And so nursing was never really, I guess, my passion. And so I think I went into it for the wrong reasons. And so with nursing, I burned out very quick. You know, I, well, I, I enjoyed like nursing too. I, so actually I really enjoyed psych nursing, you know, do what you know. Um, but the burnout but has to be much higher than. Burnout with nursing is, is very high. The load on nurses is a lot and it was very stressful for me. And um, I am a perfectionist and I'm also very, a highly anxious person. And so dealt with a lot of fear of I might hurt somebody by accident. And then just like wanting my notes to be perfect and the other demands, like the red tape and the documents and the paperwork. Uh, I loved working with the patients, but everything else was very rough for me. And then working 12 hour shifts for somebody that needs to be very routine um, it was very hard on me because sometimes you don't get a lunch break. And for somebody that has an eating disorder and needs to be very strict, uh, like I I don't really have hunger cues or I, I still don't, I don't, I still don't feel those. So like I eat based on time. So at this time I eat breakfast at this time, I eat lunch at this time I eat dinner and I don't deviate from those because otherwise it throws everything off for me. And so with nursing, you don't necessarily get that. Um, so some days I wouldn't get a lunch and some days I would like have to do overtime and I would have no dinner prepared. And so it would be very hard for me. And so the burnout was very fast and I had moved back. So I did my psych nurse. I was down in Cincinnati again for that. Um, moved back, was working as a school nurse. And during that time I met my boss who I currently work for running this company called the American Negotiation Institute and really enjoyed the work that he did. And he's, and I was looking for something else to do, but kind of felt like I was stuck in a corner with nursing because nurses can do nursing. And then there's not much outside of nursing that nurses can do. And so he was very gracious in letting me start basically as just doing admin work was all I had time to do. Um, And then I moved up from there, just started working with him a lot more um, and moved up in the company. And I'm now the chief operating officer. Wow, that's amazing. And and tell us about the American Negotiation Institute. Yeah, so we provide trainings like professional development trainings on negotiation and conflict resolution to different businesses and organizations. I do a lot of our work with women in negotiation um, and then also work in like public health and hospitals. So all, everything covering negotiation in um, the health sector is what I do. So, yeah. Um- What's some of the, what's the biggest need in that, in in the area that you work like about women and women in the health sector and what are some of the needs you see? Yeah. So 
the biggest thing with women is the studies have shown that women are typically not as successful when it comes to being ahead in the workforce. So I guess we're, you know, there's the the wage gap. um, And when you look at the statistics of CEOs and uh, people in the C-suite level, um, it's predominantly male dominated. And so when looking at the studies, they, they do a lot of studies about why that is. And there's a great book called Women Don't Negotiate or Women Don't Ask uh, by Linda Babcock and Sarah Lashover. And I actually had Sarah on my podcast. She's the last guest that I had on there um, looking at how it's not necessarily that women aren't successful in negotiations. They have all the skills needed and do very well when they ask. It's just they aren't asking. Um, and so giving women the skills and empowering women to actually ask and um, showing them the opportunities because a lot of times women aren't seeing the opportunities. Um, and then there's also the fact that women are often asked to do the invisible work. Um, so they're most often expected to do the housework, take care of the children on top of their regular work, whereas men don't tend to have that. So we're being asked to do more, but also being paid less at the same time. What do you think is different or what do you see that's slightly different in the healthcare, women in healthcare arena? So a lot of the work in healthcare is not necessarily just geared towards women. You know, in healthcare, there is a a bigger population, especially with nurses, a bigger population of females in there, but it's not specifically geared towards women. But with healthcare, the work there that is that we're doing there has to do with the aspects, the the multiple pieces between, you know, patients and then working on a treatment team. Um, and then also the moving pieces with uh, depending on who we're working with. So sometimes when you're dealing, when you're in healthcare, you're also having to work with getting medical supplies. Um, and so there's all these moving pieces around. And so you kind of have to switch between, you know, that patient piece, which is highly emotional. Um, so between the patient, the patient's family, and then between the patient and the treatment team there. And so there's all these mini negotiations going on, but then, then there's this other piece of like supplies and, and how you deal with all these moving pieces going on. So that's a lot of the work with that piece. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you are doing that. And what kind of services do you offer to the public? Yeah. So we have podcasts. So I host podcasts called Ask with Confidence, um, which is specifically for women. And then um, my boss, Kwame, uh, he's the director and he has a podcast, Negotiate Anything, and it's the top ranked negotiation podcast in the world. And he's been doing it for a lot longer than I. So his podcast has hundreds of episodes. So those are free for access. Then we also have negotiation prep guides. So we recommend to anybody that is having like an upcoming negotiation, preparing for the negotiation. Uh, Because studies have shown that just the act of preparation creates not only um, 6% more value or 11% more value for you, but also 6% more value for the other side. Um, So it's a huge, huge benefit. And a lot of people think that if they just think about what they want, that is preparing And there is so much more into preparation that is involved um, and that you can do. So we have these free preparation guides um, that kind of walks you step by step on how to prepare. 
So you can also get those on the website at americannegotiationinstitute.com slash guide. And those are all free. And there's 20 different guides um, that you can get access to. Like there's an introvert negotiation guide. There's a salary negotiation guide. There's car negotiation guide. So there's tons of those. And then, you know, we do workshops for the public um, and for businesses. Um, So you can have us come in and do like a professional development training. Um, We also have an online course that you can sign up for and you do that on your own schedule. And so that has a lot of modules. So there's a bunch of different opportunities for people to learn different negotiation skills through us. Are you guys doing anything special for any COVID while people are stuck at home or is there any, anything new coming? I am so excited you asked that. Um, so we, <laughs> we are a non-essential business. So most of our, you know, trainings are shut down and and being rescheduled, but we are having a free webinar coming up and it's, it, we were only going to have one, but it was so popular. We, (laughs) that the first session sold out before we partnered with, um, three universities, OSU, Otterbein and the Ohio Dominican university. It sold out so fast that, uh, before the universities had a chance to even send out a notification to their people. So we added three more sessions um, and it's a free webinar and we're asking people to come and it's going to be discussion based. And so we'll get, we'll discuss like the best practices for virtual negotiation and conflict resolution since we're all having to have conversations virtually now. And, you know, after the pandemic is over, things may transition to more digital communication. Um, And so we'll take all of that data that we gather there and we'll create a a comprehensive guide that will be free to access to anybody on how to best handle um, virtual negotiation and conflict resolution. Okay. Pop quiz. Mm -hmm. If you were to negotiate getting off of your parents' insurance (laughs) back in the day, what skills that you have learned at the American Negotiation Institute would you employ? Oh, um, I am not touching that one because I'm afraid that somebody is going to try to do that. And I do not recommend that at all um, of trying to get off of insurance. I am so grateful, even though I was so angry. I am so grateful that they did not because it is a life-saving measure. So I am not touching that one. Um, do not try oh, okay. it. Do not all try right. that at home. <laughs> okay. Not, well, I had to. I had to. I had to try. I will not teach any persuasive skills for dropping any kind of insurance. Keep your health insurance, guys. Keep it. <laughs> if you learned anything, <laughs> I, I was like, man, she's her negotiation. She probably has some has some tips and tools and. Uh, and I think I actually think the psych nurse piece is really interesting because you also know what it's like. So the mental illness and the psych part, you also know have this experience of negotiating with people who aren't in their right mind. And I think that's a really good skill to have in my experience. Like when I go to a negotiation with people who are fully in their right mind, I feel like I'm on top of the world because I have had to negotiate with everything from, you know, toddlers who rule my life to schizoaffective people who are hearing things. And having that wide range of experiences I've found to be helpful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it has definitely added an extra layer of of empowerment. You know, the biggest thing with people that are 
highly emotional is to remember that one, it's normal. And two, not to try to throw logic at them. Um, You know, I often describe, you know, if you've ever seen anybody that is terrified of flying and you're trying to get them on a plane, the last thing that is going to work is trying to throw statistics like, hey, you know, statistically speaking, um, you're more likely to get killed by in a car crash than you are in a plane crash. It's not going to work. My my dad would always try to throw logic at me with the anorexia of for like to get me to eat. Um, and it never works because it's highly you're using your emotional brain in these moments. And you're not using your your frontal lobe, your prefrontal cortex, which is where logic and reasoning is. So when things are really emotional, you got to handle that emotional piece. They need um, acknowledgement and they need validation that they are experiencing emotions. And so once you validate and acknowledge that they are having emotions and get them to calm down, then you can start using the logic and reasoning and appeal to that logical part of the brain. But when people are in heightened emotional states, don't, don't use the, the, logical, the logical reasoning because it doesn't work. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, one thing my husband and I do uh, is we talk about like, if I'm at, you know, it's on a scale between one to 10, fully calm and freaking out panic attack. We, you know, like I'm at a seven, can we come back and have this conversation when I'm at a four, you know, and like we, this, the shorthand of like my nervous system is so hyperactivated right now that I can't even hear the logic you're saying. And since from doing interventions, I've had that, you know, I, I can see when someone is basically immune to logic. And so you, you just, you just wait until the nervous system has, has calmed down to the point where they can absorb that information. And that's exactly what you're saying. Exactly. And I I know it's so tempting to like, like, just want to like shake them. Like, can't you see this is very logical? Like there is a clear explanation here. And yeah, I get it. I mean, half the time. And even as a psych nurse, I would see patients and I'm like, what are you doing? And I, and, you know, looking, looking back, on, you know, my experience with anorexia, I, I get it. I completely understand why my parents just wanted to shake me by the shoulders and be like, just eat food. Like, what are you doing? This does not help you, but it, it doesn't work. You know, they're in heightened emotional states. And again, yeah, they can't, they can't hear it. They cannot hear that logic. They need somebody to acknowledge that they are having emotions. Um, and, have that moment. And sometimes it's, they don't even need the, the emotional acknowledgement first. They might just need some space to, to breathe uh, before, before you can even, can even um, appeal to them. Do you guys do any hostage negotiation stuff? Yeah. Um, so I haven't had anybody on my podcast yet. My podcast just came out in October is when we just started this, but Kwame's podcast, my boss, his podcast, he has had quite a few hostage negotiators on his show. Really popular one, Chris Voss, hostage negotiator, FBI hostage negotiator, has a fantastic book, Never Split the, Dif- Never Split the Difference. And he had Dan Oblinger, also excellent hostage negotiator. And so those have been very interesting negotiation scenarios um, and interesting takes on how to translate like hostage negotiation situations into like business negotiations and where to use those skills and how they apply. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, um, I've heard one of the, the first one you mentioned, he spoke on, um, Dak Shepard's podcast. It was awesome. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
So, okay. So if people want to get in touch with you, they want to find your podcast, let's um, give listeners the breakdown of where they can reach out, where they can find resources. Yeah. So um, you can always find me on LinkedIn, uh, Catherine Kanapke on LinkedIn. And last name is spelled K-N-A-P-K-E. It's kind of a hard one. And then the podcast is Ask With Confidence. And you can find that on any platform. So Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, Spotify. You can also find it on our website, AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com. And then um, there's a podcast link that you can click and it'll take you directly to the podcast. And you can find all the episodes there as well. Awesome. And I'm going to put some resources for eating disorder, depression, mental health um, in your show notes. So anyone who's curious about that, definitely there's a, there's a ton of resources. Please do. And I am also equally happy to provide my email and anybody that is wanting resources or wanting to reach out just to talk about any mental illness um, concerns you're having, wanting to know how I dealt with anything, um, any questions about how to find resources. I'm more than happy to talk about any of those. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. And I really, really appreciate it. And I'm going to do your negotiation. I'm going to find one of the negotiation courses and report back. So we'll see how I do. Perfect. Thank you. I'm excited. And this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. So much fun. Thank you. And we'll be in touch. Perfect. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.